So please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, and we left off in verse 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. We're going to cover verse 4 through verse 14 this morning. But before I start the message, is it okay if I just give the score of the Broncos game? Some of you are like, no, it's on DVR, don't do it. (laughs) Some of you are like, I'm finding a new church, you mentioned the Broncos in church, you can't do that. So no, I won't mention the score of the game. If any of you guys stand up and yell touchdown, we'll know what you're doing. (laughs) Is it okay if we start on a little bit lighter note this morning? I'm just going to tell you some terrible jokes, okay? I'm just going to get it out of the way. They're so bad that I had to tell you it was a joke before I even started, all right? So there's three of them. So the first one is this. All have to do with angels. What did one angel say to another angel? Halo. (laughs) So there's one guy talking to his friend, his buddy, and they were talking about their wives. And this guy goes, you know, my wife, she's just awesome. She's just a real angel. And his friend says, you're lucky my wife's still alive. (laughs) so there's a husband and wife driving and the husband starts driving a little bit faster than he should starts making the wife nervous couples ever been there yeah so the wife's like you better slow down you're going way too fast and the husband says don't you believe in guardian angels and the wife says yes but you left yours five miles back (laughs) So now that those are out of the way, we're going to talk about angels today. This text addresses angels. We're going to learn some things about angels, look at angels throughout the scriptures, but more importantly, we're going to see how Jesus is greater than the angels. So read with me from verse 4 down to verse 14, and then we'll pray together. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Father, we make much of Jesus. We're we're thankful for your son. And we ask that you would give us a greater understanding of Jesus, that we would fall more in love with you, follow you more closely, more diligently, Would you remove distractions and bless this time in your word? Pour out your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Before we work through this chapter, let's talk about angels and get a broad perspective of what the scripture tells us about angels. First, we know that angels are an amazing creatures. In Isaiah and also Ezekiel, there's this description of angels around the throne room of God, and it's awe-inspiring. Many times when angels uh, encountered an individual, they were afraid. It was a fearful experience to where the angel would say, fear not. Angels are mentioned throughout Scripture in the Old Testament over 100 times. In the New Testament, over 160 times. So how many angels are there? We know that it's a vast multitude of angels. In Revelation 5 verse 11, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. How do you picture the throne room of God? Do you picture these angels, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, worshiping the Lord? In 2 Kings 6, we also get an understanding of how many angels there are because Elisha is being attacked by the Syrian army. A whole army is coming after Elisha and his servant. The servant's terrified, and Elisha prays, God, would you open his eyes so that he would see there's more with us than are with them? Elisha's servant's probably, what are you talking about? There's two of us and a whole entire army. How is there more with us But then God opened his eyes to where he saw the heavenly realm. He saw the angels, this host of angels that are around. This would be very inspiring to see. If this morning God opened our eyes just to see into the spiritual realm, to see all of the angels that he has around us. So they're great in number. What's their appearance like in scripture? What do they look like? Sometimes in human form. That they're not human, but they come in this human form to where you would even mistake them as a person. Other times, it's this bright light, this glorious light that shines from the angel. And we see that different places in Scripture. In Isaiah and Ezekiel, the angels are seen with a set of wings. They have three set of wings, almost like a, an insect. So they've got six wings, three pairs, and it kind of blows our mind with our imagination. But what's their function? Why do they exist? The first is to continually worship and praise God. Continually to be before the throne giving praise and worship to God. They bring God's message. Many times throughout scripture, God has a message to give to an individual. So the angel will bring that and provide it. They're ministers to believers. They, They serve the believers that we'll see this morning. And then also, they're agents of God's judgment. When you read the book of Revelation, you see angels participating in God's judgment. Are there angels gone bad? Are there fallen angels? Absolutely. This is Jude 6. It says, And the angels who did not keep their proper dominion, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains, utter darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there's angels that left their proper abode. They have a free will. They can choose to reject the Lord, to not worship the Lord. Lucifer or Satan is a fallen angel. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? So Lucifer left that state. Satan comes in deception as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself as an angel of light. That's how he can trick people. He doesn't come as evil. He comes as 
an angel of light bringing this deception into people's lives. So this is a little description of angels. And for this church in the book of Hebrews that's receiving this letter for the first time, their tendency is to elevate angels to an improper status, to the same status of Jesus or greater than Jesus. And so that's why we've titled this message, Jesus Greater Than the Angels, Greater Than the Angels. And there is still to this day a fascination about angels, isn't there? Even as I went through what the Bible says about angels, your attention kind of got perked. I could feel it in the room, like you guys are with me. You're there. You want to hear about it. You want to know about it. There's books that are written about it. It, It's in movies. We have these ideas and and that idea. And so even for us today, we want to make sure that there's an appreciation for angels, but we're not elevating them to an improper status, and we're putting our focus on Jesus Christ. That's the heart of Hebrews. The heart of Hebrews is the source is Jesus, that we look to him, that we worship him, that we grow in understanding of him. And I think that By the time we're done here in a few minutes, you're going to have a great conclusion from God's word that Jesus is greater than the angels. So let's start in verse 4 of chapter 1. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This is an interesting phrase, having come so much better than the angels. Jesus is God. He's always been greater than the angels. But what Hebrews is telling us is his greatness was multiplied. Why? Because of his incarnation, where he suffered, was crucified, died, and rose again. This is something that angels have never done. Angels have never been God, but they've also never suffered in the way that Jesus suffered, becoming much greater than the angels, obtained a more excellent name than they, a more excellent name than the angels. As we go through this, there's going to be four things that we're going to camp on that show the superiority of Christ. In verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The reason Jesus is greater than the angels is it's a superior relationship, a superior relationship, pointing out how the father has called Jesus the son. There's several Old Testament quotes here. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, there's 82 references to the Old Testament. The first one is Psalms 2, and then the second one that we see here is 2 Samuel chapter 7. In Psalms 2, the father speaks and says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Psalms 2 is a messianic psalm where the son inherits the nations. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. And in that, he quotes and says, Today I have begotten you. And this word begotten, it means equal substance. And it is the idea of when parents have children, it's of equal substance. Your your children are of equal substance. It's to, to bring forth. So the concept of Jesus being the begotten is he's the same substance as the father. He, in fact, is God. But please don't misunderstand. It's not saying that the Father created Jesus, that Jesus had a beginning point. And some people believe that about Jesus, but he's God. He's eternal. He has no beginning point. He's the Alpha and he's the Omega. So when Jesus is called the begotten, it's not saying that he was created. What God is expressing in this 
is he is expressing the valued relationship between the Father and the Son. He's the only begotten. John 3.16 speaks of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. When the Father spoke from heaven at the baptism of Jesus Christ, what did he say? This is my beloved Son. He said, this is my boy. This is my only begotten. This is my, my firstborn. This is my valued treasure. I want all of the world to focus upon him. It's not every day that the Father speaks audibly from heaven. I wish that we would have had that recorded for us on MP3, that we could play what the voice of the Father sounded like. But he speaks. Here, Jesus is surrendering to the plan of the Father. And Jesus is being magnified by the Father. This is my Son. This is my only begotten. I was praying about this section of Scripture. God, I really want to understand this. Why is this such a big deal? Why do you express this in this way? Why do you want us to see this about Jesus and how he has this superior relationship? And I was taken to my own relationship with my father, and I just began thinking about some experiences that I've had with my dad. And God's blessed me with a great friendship with my dad. And there's been a few times in my life where I just, I felt this. I felt that where my dad put his, his arms around me and expressed, you're my boy. You're my son. You're, you're my, my valued treasure. One of my first memories of my dad is being in the garage and him bouncing a basketball and teaching me how to bounce a basketball. It ended up becoming a big part of my life. Played a lot of basketball over the years. Like late elementary school, maybe third, fourth grade, I remember Saturday morning, woke up and my dad's like, let's go fishing. Those are the greatest words to an elementary age boy. You're like, what? Today? Really? We get to go fishing? And growing up in southern Oregon, uh, in my hometown, the Rogue River went right through our, our little town, and it was a contributory to the Pacific Ocean. So wonderful fishing. It was a rainy day, which is a lot of days in, in Oregon. And for some reason, my older brother couldn't go, which made the trip even better. Because <laughs> I had some one-on-one -on -one time with Dad. And then we got skunked. We didn't catch anything. When you're eight or nine and you go fishing, like, you expect to catch, like, ten fish, you know? So my dad could sense the disappointment, and he said, well, why don't we pray about it? And I'm thinking, I don't know if that's going to do a lot of good. And he got down on his knee and put his hand on, on my shoulder, and he said, God, would you just be gracious to help us catch a fish? A few minutes later, zing, we got a steelhead, and there's still a picture of me on the sidewalk back at home holding this fish, you know? It was a great time with, with dad. Remember killing my first deer with my dad, and it was kind of rite of passage, you know. Hey, I got to shoot a deer there, there in Oregon. I remember my dad walking into my high school, getting a call that my parents were at my school. My dad's a hard worker. He was an engineer. He didn't come to my school. He didn't, you know, when he was at work, he was at work, and in, when he was at home, he was at home. But for him to be at my school, I, I instantly knew that something was wrong. I was a junior in high school, and he came to tell me that my best friend had died in a car accident. And he was there to deliver that news. I remember him being there, my parents being there, my dad being there, and, and reading scripture at Amber and I's wedding and praying blessing over our marriage. Thankfully, my parents have been able to to come the first day each one of our kids have been born. My, my dad has been there to hold each one of, of my kids. 
And it's a very special relationship for me. It's a, it's a dear relationship for me. And he's getting older and I'm getting older. And it, it softens my heart. And there's a, just a little bit there that I can experience of what is between the father and the son. God wants us to see this is the special relationship inside of the Trinity. This is the father speaking to the son. This is his valued treasure. This is my beloved. It's, it's emotional. Do you know that the first reason Jesus died on the cross wasn't you and it wasn't me? It absolutely was not. We weren't the first reason that drove him to the cross. It was the Father. He said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He took the cup of suffering to glorify the Father. This then deepens our understanding of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his beloved. He gave his special treasure because he loves you and, and he loves me. The father was the one who initiated the sacrifice of his son. And this is what the author of Hebrews brings us to from Psalms 2 and 2 Samuel 7. Is he's saying, I want you to see this superior relationship between the Father and the Son, and that makes Jesus so much greater than the angels. In 2 Samuel 7, the second half of this verse, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, goes back to when David wanted to build a temple for God. God told David no. He said, instead, David, I'll build you a house, and your seed will be on a throne that's eternal. That seed was Jesus Christ coming through the lineage of David and this prophecy, this speaking, this foreshadowing of seeing this relationship between the Father and the Son. The next thing that we see in verse 6 is a superior honor. Jesus has a superior honor than the angels. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of the angels of God worship him. The angels worship Jesus. And this is an honor that the angels don't have. We're not to worship angels. We're not to give our love and our adoration, our focus, our attention upon angels. Angels worship God. And this tells us all the angels of God worship him. And we're brought to the incarnation when Christ was born. Brings the firstborn into the world. The angels worship Jesus Christ. It's an interesting thing to know about this verse because... It is a quote from the Old Testament, but then when you go back to the Old Testament, you're like, where is it? Where, where is this phrase, let all of the angels of God worship him? And in your study Bibles, you may see a note that says Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. If you go to Deuteronomy 32, 43 in a New King James Version, you don't see this verse. So you're confused, and then there's another little note in your study Bible that tells us that this verse is in the Septuagint. And at this point, you're going, I don't know what the Septuagint is. And it was when they took the Hebrew Old Testament, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, they translated it into Greek, that's called the Septuagint, and this phrase is in the Septuagint in Deuteronomy 32, and that's where we find this phrase. Now, having said that, I may have lost you, but I want you to understand the magnitude of this statement about the birth of Christ and the angels worshiping Christ. Because think about Christ becoming human flesh to the angels. They know God in his glory. They've seen God create the world. 
they understand the beauty of this relationship between the Father and the Son. They've witnessed it. And then all of a sudden, they see God taking on human flesh, the Creator coming in form of His creation, all God and all man. God coming as a six-pounder, born to a Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. And they're like, why? For what reason? For those guys? Jesus is doing this for them? This is the Father giving His Son for them? And it caused them to worship in a profound way. Remember the shepherds? Shepherds are doing their thing, and then all of a sudden they look up and they see the host of angels worshiping God over the gift of Jesus Christ. Church, I think now's a good time to start focusing upon Christ in this Christmas season, because there's not a lot about the Christmas season that brings us to Christ anymore. Like You know that it's almost Halloween when you start to see Christmas, get, Christmas gifts and Christmas decorations in the store. It, just, it gets a little bit more intense every year. Now Black Friday starts on Thanksgiving. You know, they moved it up a little bit. You know, midnight wasn't enough, so now we're going to start it on on Thanksgiving Day. And if we're not careful, it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. And Christmas needs to be redeemed, and we remember the amazing gift that God would give His Son, God in human flesh. And maybe start to evaluate. I'm starting to think, how can we do things a little bit differently in our family that can focus on Christ? You know, Christ gave, the wise man gave. How can we as a family invest in the kingdom and invest in relationships instead of just get caught up in the busyness? And then you look at the bank account in January and go, what in the world happened? You know, well, I had to spend all this money to celebrate Christmas. No, you don't have to. So now's the time to maybe reevaluate and look at verse six and see how the angels were moved to worship at the gift of Christ in the manger. Also an application of verse 6, I think is this, is if the angels are worshiping, what's wrong with me? The angels are giving Jesus this superior honor. I wonder what the angels' perspective of our worship is. Why are those guys so reserved? Why are they so worried about what they sound like? How come they only worship 20 minutes a week on Sunday? Don't they get it that you can worship at home, you can worship at your car, you can be in a place of worship while you're at work, it doesn't just have to be 20 minutes, but the angels are in this place of, of worshiping the Lord. And verse 7 says, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So there's this contrast. This is what he says of the sun, but this is what he says of angels, that he makes his angels spirits. So first, angels are created. Christ isn't created. He's God. Angels are are made by God, and they're spirits, so they're not humans. And I want to try to correct a misconception that angels are humans that lived a good life. So you live a good life, and so you become an angel. No, they're spirits. They're not human. They're they're spirits. You hear this a lot at funerals and memorial services. Someone's trying to deal with the loss of a loved one, and they say, well, I know that they're an angel up there now looking after us. And that's not the time to try to correct the misconception. You know, that's when we become a Bible jerk, right? We go, well, let me bring you to Hebrews chapter 1. They're they're spirits. You know, that's the time to pour out compassion and not get get stuck on those things. But I don't want you to go throughout your walk with the Lord not understanding that. They're not humans. They're, They're spirits, and their role is they're ministers 
of flame of fire. Ministers mean servants. So God gives them assignments to do. They're, they're submitted to God and they're powerful. They're, they're flames of fire. We go on into verse 8 and we see his superior position. So if you're taking notes and meditating upon this, you see a superior relationship, you, you see a superior honor, and now a superior position. But to the son, he says, again, this is the father speaking to the son, quoting out of the Psalms, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So first we see in this verse, the father calls the son God. Your throne, O God. One of the most contested things about Jesus is he God. He's a good teacher, he's prophet, he's God's son, but is he God? Well, if you believe in the Father, then you have to believe that Jesus is God because the Father says that Jesus is God. He says, your throne, O God, and he's speaking to the Son. It says that right in verse 8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. Christ, his position is one of ruling and reigning upon the throne. We saw this last week. That he's seated next to the Father, the right hand, this position of honor and authority. I think that this is God's intent through the book of Hebrews, is to see Christ in his exalted state. To see his crucifixion, his resurrection, his incarnation, but to not leave Christ in our perspective in the tomb, but to see that he's risen and he's upon the throne. Christ is upon the throne this morning. And as he's on his throne... His throne is eternal. Many thrones, positions of power, don't last very long. If you look at the world stage, there's nations that are fighting for thrones. They're fighting for power. And as soon as they get it, then they have to fight to keep it. They've got to fight to hold on to it. And that's happening in the past, and it's going to happen in the future. It's happening right now in the world of athletics. And I like athletics. They're, they're fun to watch. But what happens with the Super Bowl? That's a throne. Whether you like it or not, it's a throne in our society. And as soon as you win it, you've got to start over again and try to fight to maintain it the next year. In the business world, in your jobs, those are thrones. They're little thrones. And you get to this place of power and position and you've got to fight to maintain it. And there's always someone coming up behind you that's trying to take that place. And we see with Jesus that his throne is not threatened. There's no one that can even come close to his throne. There's no one that can compete for it. It's, it's forever that he's going to be upon his throne. How does he rule on his throne? With a scepter of righteousness. A scepter is a staff in which a king would rule. And Christ's rule is one of righteousness. I'm sure you've probably heard this, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. That as soon as a human being gets all of the power, that's going to corrupt them. And that tends to, to be true. We just can't handle it in our sinful state. But Jesus is God, and he has all of the power, but yet it doesn't corrupt him. He acts in righteousness. In Revelation, it tells us that they're ascribing to Jesus, righteous and true are your judgments. He rules with perfection. He always makes the right decision. We can trust that in our lives. It doesn't always feel that way. We look at his sovereignty, which is his control over our lives, over this world, and we go, God, I don't understand this. But when we see him, when we behold him, 
we're going to understand the depth of this scepter of righteousness, that he reigns with good judgments. We, we can trust that. It's a superior position. The angels don't have this position. I love verse 9. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. I really mean it. I know I say that a lot, but I love this verse. It says, speaking of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So we see Christ at his throne, but now we get to see Christ in his humanity. As he lived here on the earth, he loved righteousness, he hated wickedness, and what was the result? God anointed him with the oil of gladness more than his companions. How do you picture Jesus walking on the earth there in Israel? He was joyful. He had the oil of gladness beyond any of his companions, upon anybody that walked the face of the earth. This idea that Christians should be prunes, that Christians shouldn't smile, that Christians shouldn't laugh, that Christians shouldn't have joy, is the furthest from who who Jesus was. I think one of the things that gravitated people to Jesus was his joy. So he was a friend of sinners. Sinners were like, Jesus has something that I desire. There's there's a, a joy about him. And what was the source of his joy it was that he chose to love righteousness. He loved what was right. He loved what was good. He loved what was moral. And he hated lawlessness. He hated wickedness. And the result of that was this oil of gladness, this happiness, this joy that was placed in his life. The world and our flesh is constantly telling us, you know what, if you pursue righteousness and you hate wickedness, you're going to miss out on something. You're missing out on fun. You're missing out on happiness. You're missing out on joy. And you just need to go find yourself. Well, when you go find yourself, you're going to discover you're a sinner, just like me. But that's what the world says. Well, you've been going to church. You've been walking with the Lord. You've been committed to your marriage. It's time for you to go have some of selfishness. It's your turn. Go, go, go find yourself. And that always leads to, to destruction. Have you ever regretted righteousness in your life? Have you ever regretted holiness in your life? No, but we always regret sin. If you're high school, college age, please hone in on this verse, because I grew up in a Christian family, and I thought I was missing out. You know, my friends are getting to do this, and they're doing that, and they're, you, you fill in the blank, you get in the, the idea, and then I read this verse when I was in high school, and it hit me. I'm not missing out on anything. Jesus, he hated lawlessness. He loved righteousness, and he had all this joy that was in his life. Holiness is linked to happiness. Now, don't misunderstand. Happiness isn't that all your circumstances go well, that you're guaranteed to have tons of money and never have any difficulties, and everyone's going to like you, and you're not going to get sick, and you're going to have cheesecake delivered to your door every night at nine o'clock, and that's going to make you happy because you're holy and And it comes with hot chocolate and all these things. No, Jesus was happy based on his holiness, but his gladness was not based in his circumstances. Did Jesus have difficulty in his life? Yes, he was crucified. He was hated. He was mistreated. He was spit upon. But he had joy in the midst of his suffering. And that's the promise here. It's not this happy life from American terms. It's joy, it's gladness in the midst of the suffering and the challenge that we go through. 
In verse 10, Jesus has superior existence. This is the fourth thing. And you laid in the beginning the foundation of the earth. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Christ is the creator. We're looking at the existence of Christ and the power of Christ. Foundations are special. It's the beginnings. Whether it's the foundations of a relationship or the foundations of a, of a new house. And what Hebrews takes us back to is the beginning of creation. Jesus laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the works of his hands. When we built out uh, this sanctuary, when the Lord allowed us to do this, uh, it was March of 2008 that we met in here for the first time. And construction started in December of 2006. That's a bad time to lay foundations, we discovered. It's not what we planned. Uh, things got delayed. And I remember we had a breaking ground ceremony, a time of prayer. This was a field. And our old sanctuary was where children's ministry is now. And after the 11 o'clock service, a small group of us gathered whoever wanted to come. And there's a backhoe. And we prayed and asked that the Lord would bless this, this building project. And the foundations were laid. And it was an exciting time. And it also was the most snowy December that we've had since. You know, these last 10 years or so, we haven't had a December like it. It was very difficult to lay those foundations. But it was a neat time. It was a special time. And that's what we are taken back to with creation here in verse 10. Speaking of creation, they will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Speaking of creation, they will perish. Creation has a lifespan as well. You've seen it on the news. You've read about it. It could even be one of your passions, all of this stuff to save the planet. Like, we've got to save the planet. And this is going to be our endeavor. And you better be careful of your carbon footprint. Because if you're, you're not careful and you don't do your part, then we might find the destruction of the planet. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but it is a little bit fun. You can't save the planet. You're not going to be able to do it. You can recycle all that you want, and guess what? It's still going to get old, and God's going to fold it up. And this creation has a specific purpose for a point in time, and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, having said that, is it wise to be a good steward? Is it something that God has entrusted to us? Is there some wisdom in recycling? Sure, absolutely. And we should be a good steward of it. But that's very different than worshiping creation. You know, if you're worshiping creation, there's all this attention put upon creation, you're going to be disappointed. It's going to get old, like an, like an old garment. Romans 8.22 tells us, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. So birth pains are leading to something. And creation has birth pains leading to the second coming of Christ. Leading to this new earth, this new heavens that God has created for us. Scientists tell us that the sun is actually losing mass. It, it burns up mass to create energy. If things go on for a long enough time, eventually the sun's going to run out of mass. Now don't get nervous. Scientists tell us the sun's at the beginning of its lifespan. But even looking at the science of the sun, it wasn't made to last forever. In verse 12, quoting out of Isaiah, Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, 
and your years will not fail. Like an old garment. You ever go through your closet? Like, this is so 1982. This is, this is old. This is so 1962 for some of you. You're like, wow, I can't believe this is still in my closet. I get attached to shirts sometimes and sweaters and sandals and my wife will go through my closet and say, you need to get rid of this. Like, it's time for this old garment to go. I've had that since high school. And high school was so awesome. We, I got I to gotta keep that shirt. She's like, no, it's got to go. And we're not giving this to the ark or the goodwill. This is an, an offense to even take it to the ark or goodwill. <laughs> and that's the analogy here. That's what's being said here. Is, is eventually creation is going to be this old cloak where it's time for it to go, and God has the power, just like he created it, this superior existence, to also fold it up. But the message about Christ is that his years will not fail. Christ doesn't ever wear out. Christ doesn't get old. He doesn't become like an old garment that needs to be put away. And also, he doesn't change. He is the same. That's encouraging. You think back to your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and Jesus was the same. He hasn't changed. You go back to Moses. You go back to David. You go back to Peter and Paul. Jesus is the same. He hasn't changed. We think about future generations, and we get discouraged, don't we? We get concerned for our kids and our grandkids, and what kind of world are they going to grow up in? Guess what? They're going to grow up in a corrupt world that's temporary where Jesus is the same, where Jesus is faithful where he's a sufficient refuge for the challenge of the day, he doesn't change. And that's a superior existence to that of the angels. And we can take hope in that, that God will be faithful to us. He'll be faithful to our kids and our, and our grandkids. In verse 13, but to which of the angels, we find the contrast again, has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? This is a promise that's given to Jesus, not to the angels. So what's the role of the angels? In verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So here's the job for angels is that they're ministering to us. They're ministering to those who inherit salvation. They're serving those who are the children of God. Now that's pretty far out. That's pretty cool to think about. And I do think there's an appropriate appreciation of God's creation. Like you look at the sun, sunset, sunrise, and it should cause us to glorify God. We can look at angels and we can glorify God. But if we glorify the angels, we've missed it, haven't we? We don't see anywhere in scripture that we're to focus on angels. We're to focus upon Jesus Christ. But we can be thankful for the role that they play in our lives. Psalms 91 verse 11 and 12 says, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Don't test God on this. This is keeping you in all of your ways, not keeping you in all of your recklessness. This isn't this idea of like, I can just be reckless and God's going to send his angels to protect me. Having said that, I wonder how many times angels have protected us and we didn't even know. And maybe God will show us those highlights when we get to heaven. Say, so remember this car accident? You just thought it was coincidence? This angel was there and was involved in, in protecting in that situation. 
It's a wonderful truth that we see about the angels. So in conclusion, what do we find? Angels are worshipers. They're created. They're ministers. They're spirits. They aren't sons. They aren't rulers. They're not humans. What if we get this understanding of angels wrong? What if we make too much of, of angels? There may be a tendency to take angels' word over God's word. What if... You had an experience with an angel, full-on experience with an angel. Would we be discerning enough to test what they said to see if it lines up with Scripture, with what God says? Because when people experienced angels in the Scriptures, it was very moving. And it's a supernatural experience. You know you've seen an angel, you've gotten a message from an angel. What should your response be? Well, does it line up with Scripture? Because remember, who can come as an angel of light? Satan. So that's a great way to lead people astray. Do you know how most of false religions have started at their origin? An angel coming to an individual claiming to have the message of God about Jesus Christ. And it's a false message. It's a false Jesus. It's a mixture of some truth with a whole lot of lies. Paul was so bold to say, even if an angel comes and preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. So we have to be discerning. And we have to put our focus in the right place of Jesus Christ. He has the superior relationship, the superior honor, the superior position, and existence. As we take communion, we're going to prepare to take communion. I hope that communion is fresh to us this morning. It's a a great application because communion is to be done in remembrance of Jesus Christ. And as you hold of the bread that symbolizes Jesus' broken body, and you hold of the cup which symbolizes his shed blood, I want you to think about this, the only begotten, the beloved, where the father's saying, this is my son, this is my boy, this is the one who has dwelled with me in eternity past and eternity future, and I loved you enough to give my son for your sins. It's amazing. You could think about that for all of eternity. But for this morning to be grateful for that, to think about the son's love for the father, that he would surrender to the cross to honor and glorify the father. We teach, we preach, we talk about the grace of God. The way that God's grace flows into our lives is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's not just past tense, it's present, where we come and we confess sin to the Lord. Not to try to earn salvation again, if you've already trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins, but for fellowship. God, what's standing between me and you that I'm not seeing? Holy Spirit, search me and then agree with God. Confess those sin and receive that grace and that forgiveness afresh. Maybe you haven't surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. Church can't save you. Going to church can't save you. Being a good person can't save you. You can't go to God and say, God, well, I was, I was better than my spouse or I was better than my neighbors or, man, you should have known my parents. The only thing that can save us is faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the gospel. It would be offensive to God if anything else could save us because he's telling us the only thing that can save you is my son. And trusting my son. And then we go to God, well, I think I could do that on my own. Or I didn't think that Jesus existed. Or I didn't think that you created the world. And the father's saying, I gave you my son. You ever have a gift sent back? 
You send it, and it's returned to you. Return to sender. Have you done that with Christ? Have you done that to the Father? You know, return to sender. I, I don't want that. And today can be the day of repentance, turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Say, Jesus, save me. Be the Lord of my life. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Realizing my need for Christ, realizing I'm a sinner, realizing I need to be saved. So as we pray and prepare for communion, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. It's responding to Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to raise your hand to him, and more importantly, surrender in your heart. Say, Jesus, I want to receive your grace. I want to receive your forgiveness through faith. So let's pray together. Father, we're amazed that you would give us your son, this this relationship, your, your beloved, your begotten. And you would surrender Christ to come as a man, to suffer, to be crucified, to rise again. Jesus, salvation is your work. You're the author of salvation. God, would you knock upon hearts? Holy Spirit, would you move in the way that only you can?